0: With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom.
1: Simply visit www.realitycheck.radio slash donate to make a difference today. Michael Riddell has spent 30 plus years doing economic analysis and policy advice for a range of institutions in New Zealand and overseas. Most of that time was at the Reserve Bank, where he was responsible for monetary policy implementation, foreign reserve management, and the analysis of financial system risk. He spent 25 years or so on the OCR advisory group to the governor. He's also been resident economic advisor to the central banks of Papua New Guinea and Zambia, the latter as an IMF appointee. He spent some time on the board of the International Monetary Fund and also as a special advisor at the Treasury. He now runs an economics blog called Croaking Cassandra and also a blog on Christianity called Among Traditions. He joins us today to talk primarily about the economic side of the immigration question. Hello, Michael, and welcome to the show. It's good to be here. First, a little bit of mythology and history. Who was croaking Cassandra, and why have you named your blog after her?
0: Uh, Well, it's a sort of derivative. I mean, she was in Greek mythology, but I picked up the title from the famous economist John Maynard Keynes, who about 100 years ago published an essay, a collection of essays called Essays in Persuasion. And in that, he described his writings as the croakings of a Cassandra doomed to be right, but never to be believed. It was essentially the Cassandra story in Greek mythology. And that was a bit of my experience in my last few years in the New Zealand Public Service. I was running issues and arguments that I was interested in, not getting a lot of uh, traction uh, with my bosses at the time. So it sort of seemed like an act name when I was leaving the public sector and setting myself up as a sort of independent commentator to run that slightly
1: ironic sort of title. And last week on the show, I spoke to William McGimsey on the social and cultural impacts of mass migration. But I'd like to ask you specifically about purely economic arguments around immigration, whether high numbers of uh, of immigration is a good thing or a bad thing, whether even low numbers could be damaging economically. And uh, I'd like to get your impressions on what the new government plans to do as well. Over the weekend, Erica Sanford, the immigration minister, was interviewed on small changes that she's planning. And this was also followed up on the news by a generic economist, I don't remember his name, basically saying the government shouldn't do anything. Everything will go back to normal soon. And the status quo is a good thing. Are you roughly aware of what she's planning to do and the the immigration minister, and what are your initial impressions of the plans the government has?
0: From what I've seen, um, the the changes at the margin, and I mean, they're deliberately designed to be changes at the margin. Basically, our two main political parties have had a a pretty common ground now for 30 years that high levels of inward migration, non-citizen migration, are a good thing for New Zealand. The... um, The Ministry of Business and Innovation and Employment a few years ago, used to describe it as a a critical economic enabler in New Zealand. And and the belief has been that if we bring in skilled and talented people and lots of them, uh, it would help to lift our own productivity performance here in New Zealand. Productivity growth in New Zealand over decades has been lousy. And the Prime Minister highlighted in his State of the Nation speech on Sunday, a point that I've been making for some years, that our average productivity in New Zealand is now behind about of about half of the former Eastern Bloc members of the Rich Countries Club, the OECD. So these are countries like Poland and Lithuania that 35 years ago were still under communist regimes or even part of the Soviet Union. Much, much poorer and less productive than we were then. They're ahead of us now. And we're just continuing to drift further behind those countries and, most importantly for us, behind Australia, which is where many of our young people are going. So, I mean, the argument I've been running for a decade or so now has been that we need to reconfigure how we think about immigration in the New Zealand context. Now, if you go back, you know, 200 years from New Zealand to the dawns of European settlement, what migrants were able to bring to New Zealand in the 19th century was the skills and technologies that Western Europe had developed to a country where there was a lot of relatively productive land. And they were able to make good opportunities both for themselves. And in economic terms, for those who are already here, you know, Maori living standards um, were raised materially through those exposures to immigration and the economic opportunities that it raised. That's a quite different
1: world to the one in which we're in today. You talked a little bit about productivity here. Do you have a a layman's 60-second explanation of the economic measure of productivity that perhaps those listeners not familiar with what productivity is in the way that the policy setters use it. And I guess what makes productivity go up, what makes productivity go down?
0: Yeah, I mean, what productivity isn't is just about people working harder. So what we think of it as, as economists, is the amount of stuff that's produced in the economy divided by the total number of hours worked in New Zealand by everyone who's working uh, in the economy. And that's the sort of standard international measure. Um, What what drives it is a complex story? At a global level, a lot lot of it's just about knowledge and innovation. The the stuff that we understand as societies that we didn't understand 500 years ago are the energy resources that we've been able to develop and bring to bear. So, you know, the Industrial Revolution in Britain, for example, is partly powered by access to coal resources and the ability to use those in an engineering um, context um, and to develop trade and industry based on that what drives it in a cross-country sense is a more puzzling question you know you look at new zealand and you say our productivity the amount that we're producing per hour worked here is no more than about 60 percent of that of the leading industrial economies those are the us and some of those northwestern uh, european countries denmark and belgium netherlands and so on and The reasons why have been contested now for some decades, it was about 60 years ago that people first realised that New Zealand was starting to drift behind. If you go back to World War II and the decades prior to that, New Zealand was one of the richest and most productive countries in the entire world. But by about 1960, it was becoming clear that uh, we were drifting behind. Some of that was that we, as a matter of policy, turned our back on the rest of the world. So, the Labor government in the late 30s and 40s had put up import barriers and trade protection, import quotas. We were assembling televisions and cars here in New Zealand for a tiny market. Just incredibly inefficient stuff. But all that was pretty much stripped away in the 1980s. And a common view at that time, and you know, I was a young economist at the Reserve Bank, and it was probably my view as well, was that we'd take away those obstacles and pretty quickly we'd be able to reconverge with the more successful advanced economies. We haven't done that. If anything, the gap has continued to widen just a bit more slowly. And so trying to understand why that gap has opened up and stayed wide has been the thing that's probably really driven me as an economist in the last 15 years. And there's a lot of other smart people around who've been trying to make sense of it. I think it's been a growing recognition that what matters much more than we realised is distance. You know, my old boss, Alan Bollard, when he was governor of the Reserve Bank, used to run a line that said, New Zealand was the last bus stop before Antarctica. And, you know, it's a nice image, um, but it's really true. You know, there's no large, settled population anywhere in the world that is more remote than New Zealand is. And, you know, we're sitting here doing this interview over Zoom or Google Meets, and in some respects, the distance has been killed. I can talk to you like this quite easily. But what we found economically, globally, is that if anything, distance is mattering more than it used to. You now, you go back 100 years, New Zealand was exporting wool and butter, just bulk commodities to London. What you needed was an agent in London to handle the marketing of it. But they were pretty generic, simple products. These days, advanced economies tend to be producing really complex products with a complex set of skills needed to support them and produce them. That might be marketing skills or legal skills or just specialist expertise in particular areas. And increasingly, what the data seem to be showing is that it's concentrations of populations that are really able to produce at the highest levels. So you can think of northwestern Europe, the sort of areas, London, Paris, Amsterdam, Frankfurt, Zurich, that whole northwestern area of Europe, really successful economies in many regards, or the northeast of the United States, uh, or in East Asia, Tokyo, Seoul, Shanghai, Beijing really big concentrations of expertise, we suffer. Now, you know, New Zealand, there are a lot of bad things about the way in which we've run our economy, even in the last few decades. There are many good things as well. It's relatively easy to set up a business in New Zealand. We're still a relatively uncorrupt society. Legal system works and so on and so forth. And so we get a lot of really smart businesses setting up in New Zealand. But what we find is that increasingly, A smart business set up here will be more valuable to somebody if it's based abroad. And so our smart businesses set up and often are just sold out. And people take the opportunity to pay the cash, to retire, to go and do something else, to do something different. And that's individually rational for them. It's perfectly sensible. But what it means is that it's really hard for us to support a large number of people in this remote location to First World Living standards. And that sort of brings me back to the immigration story. It sort of says, well, what's New Zealand got going for it economically? A lot of what it's going for, like Australia, is actually the natural resources that we have. You know, the ability to use pastoral farming to and apply quite advanced technologies in many cases to produce good outputs. Even our tourism sector, that's a big part of our economy, doesn't rely on you go to Florence or London and you go to art galleries or beautiful cathedrals or anything of the sort. Tourism in New Zealand is about our natural resources as well. The the physical location, the beautiful country that we live in. And I, I think what the data are increasingly pointing to is that we can sustain good living standards here, but not for that many people. And I think that's the structural mistake that's been made in New Zealand probably really since World War II, but increasingly in the last 30 years, is that we've, as a matter of policy, brought in a lot of people from abroad, many of them very able people individually. This is not about individuals or their contribution or them doing the best for their families. It's what difference have they been able to make and what difference have we, as a whole, been able to bring about for living standards in New Zealand. And that's just underwhelmed. And in some ways, you touched on the question, you know, why have people been leaving? The the best indication that we've been making a policy mistake is the question of what have our own people been doing? Well, ever since the late 60s, in increasing numbers, New Zealanders have been leaving. And why have they been leaving? Because life is better materially in Australia. You know, wages, average levels of productivity, productivity underpins wages in the longer term are probably 30% higher in Australia than they are here. And quite a few of those cities, Brisbane most notably, house prices are cheaper than they are here. If you're a young person, energetic, the opportunities just look uh, better there. So what we're doing is we've seen our own people leaving in large numbers. It ebbs and flows a bit with the state of the Australian labour market and the mentality that developed back in the early 90s was New Zealanders are leaving. We need to replace them. So, you know, let's step up the migration program. And the problem with that logic is that it never made a lot of sense. It sort of sounded superficially appealing. But if you think of small towns around New Zealand where economic opportunities moved on, what I like to mention is Taihape. Taihape in the middle of the North Island, you know, used to be at its peak, I think, a population of... Four or 5,000 people, sheep farming and wool went into relative decline, the railways went into relative decline, and the population gradually moved away. And and Taihapi now is about half the population it used to be. It would be utterly crazy for a government to be saying, oh no, Taihapi's population's been falling, we need to steer some more people there. It would only worsen the economic opportunities that exist there. And that's a sort of uh, like an overly simplified version of the story about the New Zealand economy as a whole. So I've probably
1: rambled on long enough for that. For, for the moment, I should turn it back to you and see where you want to take the conversation. Yes, thank you very much. It is. I was going to say basically, we've got ourselves into a death spiral, sort of where the economy. We want to benefit from economies of scale, but because we're so far away, we can't. So we bring in more people, uh, which and, and and people are leaving. So that cycle doesn't stop until there's some big policy change to basically say, do we pursue stable population for New Zealand? Do we pursue shrinking population for New Zealand? From what you're saying, it sounds to me like your belief is that a if the population of New Zealand were to decline, that would not immediately have negative economic consequences. Is, is that a, a, an okay conclusion to draw, or would that actually be harmful to have a shrinking population?
0: I think in general it probably wouldn't be harmful. But, I mean, the first thing I'd say is that I don't think governments should be running population policies either to increase the population or to shrink it. I mean, in the end, fertility choices of New Zealand families are matters for individuals, and natural increase should be the um, primary basis on which population changes over time. My caution is that we shouldn't be deciding to use immigration policy with one particular population objective in mind. But, you know, why would I think that a flat or maybe even fallen population wouldn't be particularly harmful? Well, the best concrete example I'd probably refer people to there is the countries of Eastern and Central Europe. So, you know, a whole bunch of these countries from, you know, Lithuania, Estonia, all the way down to uh, Romania and Bulgaria were part of the Eastern Bloc 40 years ago. They came out of that period of communist rule and really grossly inefficient economies. And since then, as the opportunities in Western Europe have opened up, the combination of a really low birth rate and outward migration to Western Europe might have been thought by some to have been damaging those economies. But actually, what they've succeeded in doing, in almost all cases, the exception probably being Ukraine at the moment, even before the war and Belarus, is to start catching up quite dramatically to the Western European economies. Uh, they've integrated their economies with places like Germany. A lot of a good example is the West German car industry. A lot of components manufacturing is now occurring in those slightly cheaper neighbouring economies. And because not so much resources are having to be devoted to building lots of houses, those resources are in effect available for investing in business. And so, I mean, I've never been there, but people tell me you go to Prague or Budapest or uh, Bratislava these days, and you're looking at first world cities, you know, really successful economic transformations. So, I mean, I don't think you should be aiming for a shrinking population. My point's more a diagnostic one, that had we not tried to supercharge the population for the last 30 or 40 years, we would probably be a bit better off than we are now. What we do from here, the people who've come and migrated have become New Zealanders, and we should embrace them and recognise that they're now part of our community but it doesn't make sense to keep repeating the strategy going forward. Uh, And I think there's a point there as well that, in the end, countries make their own prosperity. It's very unusual to be able to transform your economy by bringing in a bunch of people from other places. They may be very able people, and even if there are no sort of social or cultural issues, the fortunes of a country like New Zealand that was once a leading-edge country it can be done so again by our own efforts, by our own sort of sensible policy design. It's just that the mentality here for too long, and in some ways this goes all the way back to Julius Vogel in the 19th century, has been we need to have a big New Zealand here rather than stopping to say, what are the opportunities here? What are the resources that are open to us? How can we best produce good quality living standards
1: for our kids, our grandkids? Yeah, I often see that People who have moved here to New Zealand or second generation immigrants there, they end up moving on as well because they think, oh, well, there are better opportunities, better economic opportunities overseas. And sometimes I get asked as well, why don't you move to Australia? You, know, you could make twice as much money in Australia, but, but that's not really the draw card of New Zealand for me. Uh, it would be great if it were, but being part of New Zealand isn't just about the, the economic side of things.
0: No, it's not. Although th- 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 there's another point there that, I mean, I remember 20, 30 years ago, we used to get told that uh, we were going to welcome Korean migrants because New Zealand was a less hard driving place than Korea. And you can certainly see why that's really attractive for those individuals and for their children. But actually, from a New Zealand perspective, if we care at all about trying to lift our material living standards for those of other countries, we do want people become not for the quiet life, because the quiet life is a path that, that risks being a drift to economic mediocrity, but you at least want enough people who are hard driving and energetic and going to create businesses, take advantage of those opportunities and lift our performance. Perhaps one other thing I could touch on there is, you know, the place of Auckland. And there was a sort of view that was run around here in government circles for a couple of decades that you know Auckland was going to be our global city, and that we should concentrate a lot of resources into building Auckland and seeing people moving into Auckland. I think again, it's an example of where a lot of thinking has been pretty wrong-headed. Now there are things we could have done better. you know transport in Auckland is pretty terrible, congestion charging needs to come, house prices are absurd. But more to the point, Auckland is not the basis, really, of almost any of our major export industries in New Zealand. You know, there's a handful of exceptions. You could think of, like, Fisher and Pike Healthcare, for example. But something like 85% of all New Zealand's exports are, in one way or another, still natural resource-based. They're not arising out of an urban environment. And, you know, one of my former colleagues, one of New Zealand's smartest economists, describes the Auckland economy in many ways as having become the economy of Auckland is building Auckland. The population's growing so rapidly that a lot of resources just have to be devoted constantly to keeping up with the population growth rather than laying the foundations for a more productive, wealthier economy overall. And part of that is that we look around cities in Western Europe, you know, in London and Paris, average incomes in London and Paris 70-80% 70, 80% higher than those in the rest of the country because those are environments where, you know, London is a financial powerhouse. Paris has a lot of uh, really big, successful global businesses based there. Same in San Francisco, New York, or Tokyo. Uh, it's not the case in this part of the world. In New Zealand, Auckland incomes aren't much higher than those in the rest of the country. And This story is true to some extent in Australia as well, that in Australia, by far the wealthiest state in terms of average productivity is Western Australia, not from Perth, but from the mines. Sydney Incomes, for example, Sydney's a glamorous city, it's an attractive place to visit, but it's just not much more productive than the Australian average. So these stories that I tell about New Zealand have quite a lot of applicability to Australia as well. The only difference in Australia is that they've had a whole bunch more minerals and gas and LNG that they've been able to bring to market in the last 15 years. New Zealanders tend to think of Australia as a very successful economy. Actually, by global standards, it's not. Its productivity, its GDP per hour worked, is still only about 75% of that of the leading Western European and. In North American economies. So Australia suffers from distance, even as we do. And even with 26 million people, they're scattered across a continent the size of the United States.
1: That is a long way from any of their major markets. Do we? Would we get much advantage from increasing the amount of natural resources that we extract like Australia does? Like, is that a government policy that they seem a little bit interested in at the moment to increase the amount of natural resources that we're tapping into. Would that make a bigger difference than just about any of the other stuff that they're tinkering around the edges with? I mean, you'd have to turn to the geologists to know what the potential is there.
0: If we could realise the potential that some people claim is there, then yes, it would make an enormous difference. I mean, you look at the countries that are really rich in this world, there's either the industrial service economies of northwest Europe and the United States, or there are the natural resource-based economies. And you could think there of Norway, of Australia, but also the Middle Eastern ones, you know, Saudi Arabia, Oman, Kuwait, Brunei, and in more in our part of the world. A small number of people and a lot of natural resources can be a pathway to much greater economic success and prosperity. Uh, you say the government's toying with it at the moment, and I think that's right. I think back to 10 or 12 years ago when I was at the Treasury, and I sat in a meeting in a cabinet committee, actually, and a couple of senior ministers then were gung-ho on the idea that we were going to develop our natural resources in New Zealand. And they were talking about gold deposits and oil deposits and rare earth minerals and all this sort of thing. And then that government seemed to decide that it wasn't worth the fight with the environmentalists or whoever, whoever. The issues are different in New Zealand, right? Because in Australia, you have massive iron ore mines out in what's basically desert that nobody ever sees and much of the public doesn't really care about. Here, it might be an issue of ripping up the Coromandel Range. It's just to be... Politically incredibly difficult. But if we could tap that, if we could find large quantities of oil and gas, then sure, it could make a material difference and make it a lot easier for us to cope with this
1: larger population that policies delivered us. So I've got a a few statements here that Erica Stanford did make in the immigration changes she's proposing. And from the sounds of it so far, you're not going to be too enthusiastic about any of them. The first thing she said that she thought was very important, which the government hasn't had was a government policy statement on population growth to set targets for population growth. You've already said that you think that's none of the business of the government, but is that just going to make things worse if we set a percentage target growth for immigration? I mean, it depends how it was
0: done. This is a recommendation that essentially came out of the Productivity Commission's review of immigration that was done for the previous government a couple of years ago. And to be honest, I think the Productivity Commission were casting around, looking for good ideas, and there were a bunch of bureaucrats, and so they think, let's have a policy statement. I mean... It could make some sense for the government to articulate clearly its thinking on the place that immigration plays in New Zealand economically. What makes me nervous about it and about what the Productivity Commission was proposing is that it's very difficult for the government to manage the overall level of immigration into or out of New Zealand. We can control absolutely the number of non-New Zealanders who come to New Zealand at any point in time. But we can have no control at all over the number of New Zealanders who leave to Australia, the number of New Zealanders who come back, or indeed the number of immigrants who once here uh, decide to move on or to go home again. And so some of the discussion that you get in this area is we need to manage immigration to deal with the absorptive capacity of the economy, the ability to build roads and houses and transport networks. I'm just deeply sceptical that you can effectively do that. The cycles in immigration, net immigration in New Zealand over 40 years have really been quite large, larger than those of most any other OECD economy. And most of that's not because of fluctuations in government policy. It's because New Zealanders go to Australia when the Australian labour market's hot, uh, when the Australian labour market's weak, they stay here. That difference is enough to make a, a, a really big difference. So uh, not
1: opposed in principle, just sceptical as to what it might realistically deliver. And on a similar subject, then the high levels of immigration we saw last year, which was about 250,000 in and then 120,000 out. She saw that as basically an an aberration, an abnormality adjusting after COVID and that everything will go back to normal. Was last year a case, do you believe, of people moving in and out because of the end of the pandemic, or is there something else going on there? Oh, I mean, I think there's definitely
0: elements of that. I mean, it's both New Zealanders leaving, you know, you just think of the young people who would otherwise have gone done an OE in London or something, and they couldn't get out for a couple of years. So there, there is a bit of a backlog there. There was a backlog of applications for people to come to New Zealand and to get residency status. All that said, it's still a choice on our part, our, our government's part, who have granted so many residence visas in such short order. And I think it sort of reflects a mentality that somehow we'd missed out by not having those migrants during the COVID period and we needed to rush to make up for this. And it's a mentality that's been there in Australia and Canada in the last couple of years as well. So, yes, I do think that we will see the net numbers drop back quite a bit. How quickly is pretty much anyone's guess? What we'd be left with, though, I think still is a mentality from the government, back to the Labour Party, that says that the sorts of rates of immigration that we were seeing before the pandemic are just fine, maybe even a good thing. I've argued they're absurdly high. We have one of the highest rates of inward migration on average of any advanced economy. The only economies that have come close in recent decades have been three. Australia and Canada, who are very much like us, mm-hmm. both of whom are, are really woefully bad productivity performers, but trade off the back of having lots of natural resources to develop. And thirdly, Israel. And Israel, of course, has the right of return that any Jewish person is able to move to Israel. The government doesn't control it, and both security on whatever reasons, they actually have a strong interest in having lots more Jewish people moving to Israel if they can. But if you compare us, for example, with the US or the UK, and here I don't mean the US under Trump, I mean the US over the last 20 years, they've had about one third the per capita rate of immigration that we in New Zealand have had. And the US is generally regarded as pretty open. The UK, even before Brexit, was running rates that were probably a third, maybe 40% of New Zealand's in per capita terms. So we're really out on a limb. And I've argued for a decade or so that we should bring ourselves back to those sorts of levels, you know, maybe a net inflow of 20,000 a year. That would put us in the, the middle of the pack by OECD standards. It would still mean that we didn't have a problem with, you know, Somebody goes off to London, meets a girl, gets married, brings her back here. You know, nobody wants to restrict that sort of immigration. But it would also enable us to focus very heavily on genuinely highly skilled people. New Zealand's not that attractive for a lot of people, you know, just because there are a bunch of advanced countries that are so much wealthier than we are. If you can get to the US or the UK or Australia and Canada... You'll typically do that first. New Zealand is regarded even by immigration advocates as pretty much a the choice market. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we get to fill up our numbers is a lot of people who just aren't super qualified. They're probably nice people. They'll fit in pretty well, but they're not the game changers. The game changers are those sort of star or exceptional people, the really hard drivers, the exceptionally well qualified people um, who yeah, we can reasonably welcome, offer them a lifestyle here, and they can offer something quite significant to our economy, but in small numbers, not in the world.
1: So the immigration minister said that she wasn't going to set a specific cap on migration levels, but you believe that they should be roughly 10 or 20 percent of what they are now, effectively, or what they have been over the last few decades, We'd we'll be running at close to 100,000 per year, I believe. Well, the 100,000 really has only been in the last couple of years. And So before the
0: pandemic, we were probably up to around sixty to 70,000 net um, arrivals. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I would be setting the non-New Zealand arrivals, maybe 20,000 a year or something of the sort. That would probably deliver us a small net migration and flow. But yes, a lot lower than we've seen. I think what we'd see if we did that is that our economy would just become very skewed inward. So Successful economies tend to be ones that export. Exports as the share of GDP in New Zealand now are no higher than they were 30 years ago. They're lower than they were 20 years ago. And a lot of that's because we've made New Zealand a high-cost economy, trying to absorb large population growth without great new opportunities developing in the private sector here. Take that pressure off. Our interest rates will be lower. Our exchange rate would fall, it would be relatively more attractive for firms to invest
1: uh, in export industries based here in New Zealand. And then similarly, she did say, perhaps positively then, that she was looking at more stringent labour market checks, so pushing employers to prove they have not been able to fill jobs from the local labour pool. And she also did point out that half of immigration last year was in the unskilled labour category, and that she really wanted to push that to high-skilled labour. It sounds like your view is that skill... Is fairly important to immigration? Is there also a risk that high skill immigration could punish young people, university students, they go and study and then look for higher skilled jobs and they don't find them? Or are many of these higher skilled immigrants people with decades of experience who are who are not really competing with younger people in New Zealand? I think generally we won't attract many
0: people with decades of experience. You know, if you're an established professional and um, anywhere, you know, but, perhaps family reasons or something might bring you to New Zealand, but but otherwise, you know, why would you move at that stage? Most migrants tend to be relatively young. But, you know, we do have significant workforce shortage issues in New Zealand. So, you know, if we concentrate our migration on bringing in doctors and increase the number of tr- people that we're training locally, it will be surprising if you ran into major problems there. I mean, I think the biggest concern with the direction the Minister's talking about is, is probably not the overall direction, it's how to make it work. So there's a lot of gaming of the system around people who are allegedly highly skilled. You know, you can get a residence visa under a highly skilled category for managing a service station because you're regarded as a retail manager. It's just not as skilled a job. Cafe managers used to predominate. So yes, focus on skills, but be serious about it. One scheme I think the government have picked up some of this is but you could envisage a system in which anybody who was getting a master's degree or above from a top 100 university in the world you'd be pretty open to take because you say they've gone through the screening check, they've demonstrated that they can work hard and get those sort of strong academic results. And then, of course, there's the other side of the equation, the refugee quota. I mean, my own view is that because there aren't strong economic gains to be had from migration, to the extent that we want to bring migrants in, maybe we want to think about being a bit more generous on the refugee side because those are people who really are facing major challenges in the countries that they're in or where they've relocated to. But that's a bit of a distraction from the economic issue. It's just to say we won't get economic gains from bringing in really low-skilled people. So why are we doing migration? We might do it for a combination of charity and compassion on the one hand, and at the really highly skilled end, an economic contribution that those people can make. The, the group in the middle, there's just not a particularly compelling
1: case for. Well, whether or not you'd get kind of cross-party support support from the left and the right for that. I don't know. It may be too controversial. If you've just tuned in, we are interviewing Michael Rodell on the dialogue with Dio Deboer. Please do send your thoughts, your feedback, even questions on 2057 or email at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We've discussed the issues of immigration policy specifically in a lot of detail already, and but we haven't really touched on housing supply or yeah, whether or not we're getting a negative feedback loop here where house prices are increasing, we have lower birth rates, lower family formation, we have high immigration. Is there a, a tenable policy in the future where house prices actually come down or are we stuck in this feedback loop where the entire New Zealand economy is built on the housing market? It's just a, a big, well, a literal house of cards, as it were. <laughs>
0: Um, I mean, I think there are realistic options open to us. And again, for a long time, I've been championing the experience of, you know, big, fast-growing cities in the middle of America, Houston or Atlanta, for example, with really strong population growth. But they've managed to run Land use rules that make it easy to build. And so house prices are cheap. You know, the sort of house that you might pay a million dollars for in Auckland or Wellington, um, you can probably pay 400,000 US for in somewhere like Houston or Atlanta. And it's not just those huge cities, it's cities our size as well, you know, half a million, a million and a half. It can be done. It's a choice not to. I mean, and you know, people will say, well, aren't our cities land constrained? Auckland, for example, there's still a lot of land in and around the city. And what we've got though is councils and governments that are saying, oh, we think development should occur here and not here or here and not here. What you need in any of our cities is pretty much an open competition so that people who own the land around the margins of our cities are keen to develop it because they want the development to occur where their property is, not where someone else's properties are. A lot of the focus from housing reform people in New Zealand in recent years has been on increased urban density Mm -hmm. um, and allowing people to build apartments and townhouses. And I mean, I have no objection to that in general you know, I was in Sydney over the weekend and central Sydney is quite a lot more dense than New Zealand cities. It has its appeal, particularly for young people who aren't particularly interested in the backyard or haven't got to the stage of having kids. But what you need is both the ability to build up and the ability to build out. And if you do that, uh, there's no reason at all why we couldn't have much cheaper land prices, much cheaper house prices in New Zealand. And as you say, that does make it more attractive for people to have kids a bit younger. It makes it a bit more attractive for people to stay in New Zealand. You might put up with a lower income here than you could earn in Sydney or Melbourne if house prices are a whole lot cheaper for you. So it is one of those areas where we're shooting ourselves in the foot. The incoming government has talked a bit of a good game about allowing more greenfields development. What that amounts to in practice, we're going to have to see over the next year or so. I'm not that optimistic that they'll follow through, but I'd like to be proved wrong.
1: Is it the older generations, perhaps who hold a lot of political power and interest in keeping house prices high, that will mean that the current government Effectively, is not going to look at any serious policy to bring house prices down. That but, but lowering house prices intentionally is politically untenable. You you forfeit the next election if you if you say we're going to cut house prices by ten percent, twenty percent, fifty percent, whatever it is. I, I think the issue is not so much old people. I mean, I
0: put myself in that category, right? I mean, I'm sixty one. I genuinely do not care if house prices fall by fifty percent. I don't have a mortgage on my house anymore. I'm going to live here with my intention until I die. It's a house. If anything, I would strongly welcome much lower house prices because my kids are going to be in that age in the next five years of wanting to move into the housing market. Just impossible for a young generation to afford. I'm in an economic position, I might be able to help them. There are a lot of poor families for whom that won't be the case. So, you know, we're structurally disadvantaging people at the margins of our society. But there are real significant issues for people who've taken out a mortgage in the last five or 10 years. You know, if you've taken out a $750,000 mortgage in Auckland or Wellington, you will live in terror of house prices falling 50% and this is the line that I've been running for some time, is that every year that passes, the problem becomes more intractable because we have more people who've taken out those super large mortgages. I mean, it's not a popular line necessarily, but I think that we probably need to be willing to consider some sort of compensation scheme for those people. Um, You know, you need to be able to say, we're determined to deliver cheaper house prices for the future, uh, for the next generation, for the prospects of this country. But we recognise that for young families who might have taken out a large mortgage in the last decade, it's not their fault that the government messed up the rules so badly. And so maybe we buy off some of the political opposition with uh, a partial financial compensation scheme. And I've written some of that up on my blog over the years. And, you know, people reasonably say, well, hasn't the government run up big debt in the last few years? Aren't we budget constrained? And, yeah, absolutely we are. But the housing market situation is, it should be an untenable disaster. It's an unnatural disaster foisted on us by our governments. And we can't just say, Oh, well, never mind. It's too hard to get out of. We'll just live with this forever. You know, when I was young, uh, house prices typically in New Zealand were three to four times income. New Zealand is still only 1% built on. There's so much land in this country. We could relatively easily uh, fix the problems directly, deliver lower land prices, lower construction
1: costs and affordable housing for our families. We should. Absolutely. Great. Your other blog is named Among Traditions. And you often write about the sad state of Christian religion in this country. Do you believe that economic and social decay will lead to some kind of revival? Or has it actually, I guess, declined? Have have both economics and religion declined in a similar sad state?
0: Interesting question, isn't it? I mean, clearly, you know, New Zealand is wealthier than it was Decades ago, material living standards do continue to improve. So, our decline on the material side has been relative to other countries who've gone ahead faster than we have. By contrast, the decline of the Christian church has been absolute. You know, I've occasionally pointed out on that blog that just the part of Wellington where I live and we first came here 45 years ago. The number of churches is now probably about half what it was then. Hardly any of those churches are in fine, good health. There are exceptions, of course, but I'm not convinced that the two are correlated, the economic failure and spiritual problems. I think if anything, there's still that sort of secularisation hypothesis in the West, that as the West has become more prosperous, enable better technologies that have enabled people to feel that they don't need explanations to the mysteries of life, they don't need communities to help them in the way that they might have otherwise. The church has failed sufficiently to adapt to be able to present the gospel in a way that is compelling and appealing to a new generation. And, you know, of course in the end, these things are not our works, they're God's. You know, it's a work of grace in the world. And so, you know, my prayer is for revival in our country and for our world. What it would take to bring that about, well, who knows, because that's the spirit moving. But uh, I mean, clearly there's a desperate need for a sort of revival. And... But, but what I'm not sure when I look around churches, those I've been involved in and those I visit as I move around the country, is just how much of a passion there is for that sense of urgency. You know, an awful lot of what churches seem to teach these days is, is quite inward looking and, you know, dealing with the perceived problems and issues that we as individuals face. But there isn't much of a sense of a coming judgment, the fact that we will all one day stand before God and a a passion for seeing the kingdom spread among people here on this land. Mm
1: -hmm. A little bit of good news, perhaps, I see among younger people like myself, and there seems to be more interest in religion when faced with the, the sort of nihilism of the world, the secularism that you've mentioned. People have the technology and they have all of these answers, but they don't really get any real meaning in their life, right? As their communities disintegrate, uh, as, as families break down, younger people are looking for answers. And so is yeah, is there a failure of the church here, a self-inflicted wound really, where it's not providing the traditional answer that it used to give?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's an element of truth to that. I mean, the only thing I'd say is that, I mean, yes, I hear those encouraging stories from some younger people, but on the other hand, you look at the data and the, you know, rising uh, indications of anxiety and mental health concerns and all of those sorts of things. So, if there are early stages of encouragement in some quarters, they're still not large enough to to dominate the story. But yeah, you know, how do we and how do church leaders? confidently proclaim a message of hope and of salvation. And I don't know, but it's not obvious at the moment that many are even trying. And I imagine that if you're a church leader, it must be really quite incredibly discouraging in many respects. You know, you might be perhaps 50 now when you were a child yourself, churches were stronger. And things in life do go through cycles, and messages need to be reconfigured. I mean, I think it was Pope Benedict who argued that the church needed to decline so that it had the opportunity to rework its messaging, if you like, and to fall back into dependence on God. And that is the basis, hopefully, for a fresh revival and, and renewal of faith in the West. The decline is certainly happening. One can only pray that he's right about the eventual revival.
1: You were one of the few people that I saw being very critical of the government's decision to block clergy from being able to visit the sick and dying at the start of the pandemic and also the effective bans on weddings and funerals that went on for a number of years. Was there, you think, a real failing there from church leaders being too passive as in downplaying the spiritual and and really focusing on material and technological solutions? And have you seen, at least what I've seen is churches and who have who did give more pushback are doing much better. They're quite healthy now. Looking at five years ago, so they've seen actually seen quite a bit of growth through the pandemic simply because of pushback that they gave against the the purely technocratic solutions to the pandemic.
0: Yeah, I mean that's that's an encouraging story to the extent that you are seeing those cases. Uh, yes, I do. I mean, I think there was a very strong sense where. Church leaders allowed themselves to be rolled over. Our governments and bureaucracies, and it's not really a criticism of individuals, it's a mentality, uh, had no sense of church as anything tangible, anything distinctive. And, you know, the, the contrast between, say, the situation in the UK and that here was quite noticeable. I mean, there were quite severe restrictions in the UK, but nothing like the extent to which we saw here. And, I mean, I presume that part of that, what was going on was just that The church wasn't adequately prepared. So, you know, we were all overwhelmed in that sort of those early months of 2020 by something quite out of the blue. And if church leaders hadn't been thinking seriously about, you know, incarnational Christianity and what it means to meet together, what it means to share sacraments together, what it means to minister to one another, to pray for and to hold and comfort those who are dying and grieving. If what we're hearing more is about, you know, climate change or whatever the other political issues of the day are or those sorts of things, then, yeah, you're not going to be adequately equipped. So, you know, one hopes that church leaders are now beginning to rethink some of those things. There will be future pandemics. There will be future threats. We don't as a church live to serve the interests of the state. And there does need to be more confidence in seeing Christianity as as you in Hebrews, let's go to them outside the gate. I mean, it's we're, we're a distinctive community witnessing to a life and a sense of priorities that is different as well. And although nobody would have wanted any deaths through the pandemic, equally for the church, death is not the end. And, you know, that mentality through the pandemic, the understandable side of it was we don't want mass, mass casualties. But the flip side of that very much was a sort of secularist view that this life is all that counts. That's not our proclamation.
1: That can't be the gospel. Mm-hmm. And potentially, of course, down the line here, we're dealing with consequences of decisions that were made, economic consequences, as we talked about, where you know, if the country is materially worse off as well down the line for future generations, then there's a lot of harm that's simply been delayed, right? Rather than really facing it as we should as Christians. Yeah, that's right. And, you know,
0: some of the pandemic economic consequences were just the result of. People trying to do their best with the information that they had at the time and making mistakes. You know, the inflation that we've lived with in the last couple of years. Um, most macroeconomists, and I put myself in this category, thought that the economy would do worse during the pandemic than in fact it did. So I thought that we needed more stimulus than in fact was needed. And we're still grappling with trying to undo that and get ourselves back onto an even keel. And it's going to be some time before the debt um, is brought back under control. So, you know, these societal dislocations, things that haven't really hit us for 100 years, we're inevitably going to be really taxing and challenging. And that's part of the reason, I guess, there's still a place for royal commissions and things like that to review those experiences. And hopefully in the government opening up the uh, royal commission, it might be an opportunity to raise some of those questions too about how do societies like churches um,
1: operate within the, the natural uh, constraints that society will want to put on. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. I think we've covered a lot of ground. And uh, even though a lot of it may be a little bit negative, I think there is an optimistic view to be had. And I do hope that uh, some politicians at some stage do listen to some of your ideas and uh, that we get some fixes in place because we really do want New Zealand to prosper. Absolutely. Is there any final thoughts that you'd like to share and let us know where people should follow your work? Um, I think probably not
0: so much final thoughts, but I mean, I am on Twitter at, at MHRiddell, uh, but most of my writings are on my blog, which is www.croakingcassandra.com. That's one word, Croaking Cassandra. And I write there a couple of times a week, usually on different aspects of economic performance um, and growth. The other one, um, there's a link to it, the Among Traditions Christian blog, which I write on less frequently. You can find details
1: of that on the, the Croaking Cassandra blog. Well, thank you very much, Michael, for joining us this morning, and we will be back after the break.
0: Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. Do you like what you're listening to or dislike what you're listening to? Either way, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057, or email us at inbox at We'd love to hear from you, so connect with us today.